I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. so long no one wants to hear it anymore hey we, we need to mention uh amazon smile benevity cyber grants just giving and guide star tell tell us a little bit about that real quick yeah so okay first of all amazon smile is where um the libertarian institute is registered we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're registered with amazon <coughs> smile and that means so that whenever you um go through smile.amazon.com and choose the libertarian institute as your favorite nonprofit. um organization there then we get a little bit of a cut from their end of the sale from whatever you buy there as long as you're on smile.amazon.com and signed up for the institute Mm -hmm. and so that's a great way to help support and then those other things you listed there are um benevity and uh just giving and let me see i have the list here guides um guide star and cyber grants is what you sent me yeah there you go so all these are um, they're organizations that essentially are clearing houses for corporations who provide um, matching funds to uh, their employees' donations to nonprofit institutions. So, in other words, you take a company like Benevity, what they do is they go to Apple or Verizon or uh, General Motors or whoever and they say, hey, Instead of having an expensive department where you find what charities are acceptable to you, you just come to us and we will only list guys that we have vetted that you can feel comfortable doing matching funds for. And then your employees, when they want to donate to any of these things, you give matching funds and uh, you'll know that it's all right to do so. And so then they do all the vetting themselves. And so that's essentially what all of these things are is if you have a corporate job, and your uh, company has a matching funds type of a function, then um, what you do is you, you uh, I guess, have them check with whichever company they use, Just Giving or Benevity or the others, and see if we're registered with them. And then, like you were just saying, we are. So um, that means then you can double all your donations to the Libertarian Institute uh, and make your boss uh, donate to us too. So that's pretty good. And uh, it is our big fund drive, you know, for the from now until the end of the year. We're trying to raise enough money to, you know, really have a great start for the first year of the next decade here and really get the Libertarian Institute off on the right foot and, um, and make a stronger institute, better writers, new website, events, New books. Sheldon's working on a book. Thomas Edlam is working on a new Will Grigg book. Mm. I'm working on a book. Um, All these will be coming out in the next year. And um, hopefully we'll be doing events and doing everything we can to grow this institute for you. And so uh, it's our big fun drive. It's right at the top of the page today at libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, always at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And we have books and audiobooks and all kinds of great uh, gifts and premiums and kickbacks uh, for people who donate as well. So that's all at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And thanks for letting me say that. Yeah. And we're in part two of our interview with Scott Horton from a couple of weeks ago. In this section of the interview, these next... 50 minutes to an hour, however long it's going to be. I can't even remember exactly the amount of time. 
I think it's right at an hour and three minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, we're going to talk more about uh, the Middle East. We talk some Turkey, Erdogan, um, how he's been selling weapons to Russia, how that's affecting the relationship between Turkey and the U.S., um, Syria, obviously, and some more Ukraine. So enjoy the rest of the interview with Scott Horton and have a great weekend. Oh, and, and, and see, this is why I wanted to talk to you in this, this whole broad landscape, because I know that like it's, we can, you have the, the knowledge to tie all these things together and point out the fact that, you know, the U S backing Al Qaeda in all these different places you know, is not only treasonous because it's backing our enemies and it's causing, and then it's also creating this scenario of war crimes all over the Middle East. But they're doing, they're committing treason and these war crimes in order to hurt, you know, Iran and Russia and, and Assad and all these different, and the Houthis for, for all these reasons that really have no benefit to the United States. They're, they're all beneficial to, to proxies of the United States. And it has all to do with containment and dominance. And, you know, you, you, you've made that point several, several times. One thing I, I was thinking about when you were talking about Iran and uh, Russia and Syria and the American intervention in Syria, starting with Barack Obama was how, how much has that um, conflict actually inter- interrupted and, and, and hurt the the ten- the alliance with Turkey and how, how how much has that pushed Turkey more in the direction of Russia and Iran away from US interests you know I mean Obama could have and should have told the Saudis the Turks the Qataris and everybody else in 2011. We, that is you, are not intervening in Syria. Mm-hmm. None of us like Assad, but we're not going to do what it would take to get a regime change and put in a compliant government there. Right. And so, and America's top security priority is keeping bin Ladenites down. We're not going to give the Iraqi Sunni-based insurgency and al-Qaeda in Iraq a chance for a brand new battlefield here. Mm-hmm. That's the only, forget Iran. That is America's national security policy. And if that had been the case, I think Erdogan and the rest of them would have said, fine. Um, If that was America's take that, you know, whatever, if the if the Syrian people can pull this off, fine. But otherwise, we are not intervening. Mm -hmm. I think that would have been one thing. But essentially, he said, all right, everybody, let's do it. You guys do it. That way I'm deniable. But encourage them to do it. And the Turks backed all these crazy terrorist groups, you know, like Jabhat al-Nusra and all of their buddies. Yeah. And for a long time, they backed the Islamic State, too. Yeah. I mean, I had a former CIA officer on my show say he went to uh, Ankara, and or was it Istanbul? I forget. Uh, I think it was in Ankara. And there they all are, ISIS guys out raising money on the streets. Right. Um, you know, right under the nose of all the street cops and everybody. Everybody knows what they're doing. No question about it. And they're, you know, people come from all over the world flying to Turkey to cross the border into Syria to join up with these groups and um, and that whole effort. So now I think what Erdogan's mad about is that Trump ever abandoned that policy. Right. And the thing is, it was already a, a bankrupt policy. The fact is, once the Islamic State declared the whole caliphate and conquered all of Western Iraq, mm-hmm. you notice Obama kind of took a couple six months, not because of any non-interventionist policy, I mean, six weeks, I'm going to say. He took a few weeks, you know, through really almost like eight weeks. It was the beginning of uh, August before he really started bombing after they had sacked Mosul in early June. Okay. And essentially, I think he was going ahead and, you know what, let's play out this pressure on the Iranians and the Shia thing as much as we can. I don't think, I mean, they would have been fools to think that ISIS could take the capital of Baghdad. I don't think they probably did. Right. I think they knew that. That you know they wouldn't be able to take the, over the capital city, which is almost an entirely Shiite city now, but mm. that you know they could really put the scare into those guys and put them 
on their back foot in a way that they would be more dependent on America to come and save them. Because, you know, Iran, they're good with logistical support and militiamen on the ground, but do they have weapons and money like we have weapons and money? And so then the idea, you know, to pressure them into, um, you know, if George Bush put the Shias in power there, we still, it's a never-ending fight to try to put them under America's thumb somehow try to get them more dependent on us than they are with the Iranians. And you might have thought they thought they lost that war back in 08, and you'd be right, but they're still fighting it. And, um, you know, they definitely did take their time to launch the thing at the time. Mm. Um, but then, essentially, it was inevitable that they would have to destroy the Islamic State. They can't let there be a Bin Ladenite caliphate, right. you know, self-declared caliphate, with this guy saying he's the Caliph Ibrahim, uh, designated by Allah to be the leader in all of this stuff and sees all of eastern Syria and western Iraq? No way. So, you know, at that point, the die was cast. By the time Trump took office, the Islamic State was almost destroyed. Right. You know, they had, you know, essentially mopping up in um, in Mosul and Raqqa to do, but the rest of the thing had been obliterated. They had, had no real state anymore at all at that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, essentially, the game was up. Right. Like, what do you want us to do, Erdogan? Then Erdogan's just mad that uh, Trump is saying, uh, you know, it's time for the CIA to call off support for these guys. But Erdogan has continued to back them in the Idlib province there. Oh. And that's the last part, uh, which is in the northwest of Syria, near the Lebanon and Turkish border. Hmm. And um, and this is like the last area in the country outside of American control out in the east. Uh, where the Syrian government has not reestablished control there. And it's essentially, you know, a mini caliphate. It's it's Al-Qaeda, you know, the Al-Nusra Front under Jolani. They call themselves Hayat Tahrir al-Sham now. Mm-hmm. But it's just the Al-Nusra Front, which is just Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. That's what it is. Um, okay. I, I see. guys from Iraq War II. I think I just misunderstood what, uh, what, what Erdogan was in the middle of doing at the moment because – I thought uh, uh, I I was getting the impression that when when Trump started moving troops around and um, they they had made the deal that, you know, Assad would protect the Kurds and and Turkey's like, okay we'll back off. We're not going to we're not going to kill them. It it, it appeared to me that what that Turkey or had taken a step back from from its alliance with NATO and with America and had, had started having more uh, full-throated discussions with Russia and Putin and kind of mending bonds yeah. there. Sorry, so I, I, I might have misread that. Around, man, to, to answer your question there. In fact, you probably should just edit that whole thing out and I'll just actually answer the question that you asked there. Um, yeah, so I mean the thing of it is there that America, by building up the Islamic State in their Syria policy, they really um, essentially created a situation where they had to fight and destroy the thing that had gotten so far out of hand, and they decided to rely on the local Syrian Kurds, who were in the middle of fighting them off at the time, mm-hmm. in order to do it. Right. And but so that ended up empowering the Turks' uh, worst enemies, the Syrian Kurds, who they fear would then provide a safe haven for Turkish Kurdish terrorists from the PKK to restart their war, which I don't know how legitimate that concern is, but maybe a little bit. Right. But I think the PKK has really not been at war in Turkey for quite some time now. They've got a political party now and they're trying to participate in the system. And I mean, I guess it could be a potential threat, but anyway, the Turks essentially were acting on the theory that this was like, you know, what you and I would think of the Islamic State as, which they help, uh, you know, support its rise, is kind of the way that they uh, see Syria and Kurdistan in terms of that the danger of that. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know if they're really turning away from NATO as much as Erdogan said to Trump, "Hey, look, who's really your allies? The Kurds or me?" Uh. And Trump said, "I guess you." And so Trump gave him the green light to go ahead and go. And what he should have done. I mean, I think the guy's just not familiar enough and doesn't care enough about the thing. But the obvious solution was to just encourage the Turks not to go at all, but encourage the Syrian government to come in and take over that border area and, uh, and you know, give the Turks a reason to think that things would be okay. But yeah. instead, 
they said, yeah, come on in. So the Turks said, okay, well, we're going to push our luck then, and we're going to try to create this 40-mile safe zone thing, you know, cleanse the area of Kurds. And then the Americans finally did say, made a deal, Pence made a deal, okay, we'll bring in the, the Syrian government. But then the Russians brokered their own deal like the next day or two days later. Right. Um, saying that they will bring in their guys as well as the Syrian government to fill in this gap and to oversee the cleansing of these Kurds south. And honestly, I haven't been keeping up with the day-to-day there, but certainly hundreds of people have been killed in the creation of this safe zone. But, you know, this is in the interest essentially of all the different sides involved other than the Kurds who are on the losing end here. Right. But all of the nation states involved in this negotiation essentially want to see the same thing there. So... Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, the, the the biggest indication I've seen of um, of uh, the Turks moving away from the Americans is in buying these anti-aircraft missiles, the S-400s, from the Russians, right. which essentially are designed to take out America's F-22s and F-35s and right. et cetera. Right, and, and I think that's so kind of like... were supposed to get F-35s, and that got canceled. They had a big controversy about that. Yeah, when I saw... the idea was that, dude, you're going to let the Russians train on our planes? <laughs> yeah, when I saw them uh, starting to make well, arms you know, look, deals... The whole NATO alliance is obsolete. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. Why should we have to be allies with Turkey at all anymore? Yeah, well... You know, it's not because of any you know, principle of freedom or free markets or American national sovereignty or interests. This is all just exporting crony capitalism, man. It's just empire. Yeah. It's all just, you know, a True. racket as general Butler called it. Uh, none of this has to do with securing America's peace and liberty and the price of gasoline at your pump. So you can get to work in the morning and this kind of stuff. Well, right. You know, well, right. And it, well, and it's all, and it's all, actually harmful you know to liberty and our in our safety and security because you know it, it creates all sorts of problems all over the world that ends up finding its way back here in the form of buildings blowing up in the middle of new york city so you know if that's i mean if you're looking for more attacks of that nature then i guess you just keep doing what you're doing so. yep and that's you know I think when George Bush came out and said, look, they hate us because of how great we are. A lot of people thought, man, I wonder what really brought those buildings down. Yeah. Uh, but I think the answer to that is America's support for Israel and America's troops in Saudi. That's what caused Building 7 to collapse. Right. It was, in fact, I saw um, once upon a time, I don't know if it's out there anymore, but there was a YouTube where it was a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, New York, a lifelong New Yorker. And it was like debunking the Building 7 conspiracy. But then he wasn't like going through all the details of implosion this and free fall that and whatever, red herring stuff. He goes, listen, let me tell you why the building came down. It was because of American support for Israel. And look at what happened here. And it was about how the lead hijacker, Mohammed Atta, that he and his friend Ramsey bin al-Sheib and their other buddies at the what was called the Hamburg cell – who provided the pilots for three out of the four planes in the attack, that they were driven to this essentially to join up with al-Qaeda because of Operation Grapes of Wrath that Shimon Perez launched in uh, southern Lebanon in 1996. And it's credibly reported from multiple sources that Mohammed Atta when that started happening, he was an Egyptian engineering student studying in Hamburg, Germany. And when, when this happened, he signed his last will and testament, which was a symbolic way, essentially, of joining the army and dedicating his life to fighting against this no matter what. And it was pure aggression. And it was, uh, it was a horrible, you know, politically driven thing that Perez did for no justifiable reason at the time. And then just a couple of months later, Osama bin Laden put out his first declaration of war against the United States. And one of the major grievances in there was Operation Grapes of Wrath and what the Israelis had done in Lebanon, and particularly focusing on the Kwanah Massacre, which was where 
a bunch of women and children, 108 women and children were killed when the Israelis bombed a UN bomb shelter where they knew these people were hiding, mm-hmm. uh, civilians were hiding. And bin Laden said, this is why I'm doing this, is because this is who you are and you think you can get away with this, but I'm going to show you that it ain't so simple, etc., etc., like that. That's in the Declaration of War of 96. And when Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Sheib saw that, they said, let's do this, and they traveled to Afghanistan. And that was how they joined al-Qaeda and got brought into this group. And obviously, you know, the the guys in Afghanistan said, wow, you got visas to Germany, huh? I bet we could get you into America. And so that was how they got recruited into that plan. And that's the kind of thing that your auntie might not understand. That, Like, listen, these Egyptians sponsored by... This Saudi knocked down America's towers because of what Israel was doing in Lebanon. That might sound confusing, but actually, no, it's crystal clear. It's just like a bunch of good old boys from Texas and California and Oklahoma and Montana and uh, South Florida all joining up the U.S. Army to go to war over an attack on our towers in New York City Uh and our military headquarters in yeah. It's the same difference. Yep. Hell, we've been at war for 20 years over that. Right. I guess now I can understand, put the shoe on the other foot for a second, think how they feel being on the receiving end of that for 20 years, and for that matter, how it was for the 20 years before that, which is, you know, all important in the story. Right. Well, and I, was so it, that was what brought down building. Was so it, American support for Israel's war crimes against little babies in Lebanon. Yeah, I think I had heard you say it once, and this is this is all I was going to say a second ago. I, I think I'd heard you said it once, and I thought it was the best way to to describe it. Imagine how you felt on nine eleven. Now imagine having a nine eleven enacted on your soil every week for thirty years. That's that's why there was a nine eleven. You know, it's like okay. Yep. And, you know, seriously, uh, I, I get it, and I know I really do get it, because I was 15 in 1991, 14 right. maybe, whatever, during Iraq War One. Yeah. I thought it was great, because I was a 14-year-old boy, i.e. a psychopath. <laughs> and my idea was, if George Bush says it's fine, if President Bush says it's okay to start this war, then it is. I don't want to hear it about morality and civilian casualties and whatever. We are doing this. It's all dressed up in red, white, and blue, and all of green, and decorations, and big yellow ribbons, and we are all in this together. It's us versus the bad guys. We're going to go save the poor, innocent Kuwaitis, whoever they are, from this horrible, evil guy who's doing a bad thing because we're all Superman. We're going to go get And then, and boy, don't cry to me about innocent, dead Iraqis and that. That's their fault for being Iraqis. I don't give a damn about that. That was my own attitude. Yeah. Now, I was a 15-year-old psychopath, and that's 15-year-olds are fucking stupid. Sorry. <laughs> really stupid. You should add that. But, um, but that's the mindset, essentially, of the American people, that all this is so far away. They're essentially aliens, and not just like, you know, aliens, but like aliens. It really doesn't matter to kill them or not. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to ask somebody who thinks of foreigners in that way to go the extra mile and first of all abandon that that's really not right they're really just like you just somewhere else that's all that's the difference and it's one without a distinction Mm -hmm. okay and so if you get over that and can actually put yourself in their shoes what does it sound like when it's 500,000 well reportedly it was really more like three it was only 300,000 what does it mean when it's reported that 500,000 of your countrymen's children have died because of a global economic blockade against your country led by the United Arab States out to get us? Yeah. How would that feel to know that America's entire, you know, whatever poverty we have is all attributable directly to a foreign government's economic war against us? to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people dying. And their foreign minister on TV saying, meh, we think the price is worth it. You can kill as many Americans as you want until you don't feel like killing them anymore. That's our policy. Mm -hmm. 
then, yeah, boy, that would piss you off, right? Like, remember that one time they hijacked planes and crashed them into your towers and a few small massacres, relatively small massacres since then, as bad as Orlando was. I mean, don't get carried away. Right. It doesn't, you know, correlate to September 11th at all. Right. You'd be mad enough to kill more than a million of people who had nothing to do with that at all from countries that had nothing to do with that at all. Yep. But just because they're somewhere over there, boy, that's pretty mad. <laughs> you know? Now imagine just for a moment that they might also get mad when people kill people that they care about. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's shouldn't be too much of a stretch. Right? Not, but I understand that it kind of is. You do kind of have to be walked through it if you never took the time. <laughs> or if you really think that only commies and hippies and, you know, idiots and dreamers care about this at all. And, and you've never actually had just a regular person stop and really just break this down. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, they really are just like you. Yeah, if they were if, just... This whole thing is crazy. Killing your neighbors left. And if your neighbors were getting killed left and right, how would you feel about it? You know, and this had been going on yeah, since the 70s. Yeah, it doesn't justify what they did in any way. No, look, it doesn't. They kill civilians back. Right. I mean, they target civilians. They are terrorists and murderers. Just because we're the empire doesn't mean they're the rebel alliance. Right. They're the droid army at best. You know, they're still bad guys. Mm -hmm. Just because our government is out of line doesn't, you know, put them in a good light. It doesn't it doesn't excuse what they do. It just explains it. That's all. Any grown up ought to be able to deal with that. Right. Well, I mean, you grew up in Texas and I grew up in the South and we, I mean, I'm sure you heard the exact same thing I did when we were growing up. Two wrongs don't make a right, you know? So like you have to look at it and you have to say, okay, if, if terrorism, and I think it was, who was it? Dick Cheney that said that terrorism is the price you pay for being an empire. If that's just part of it, you know, if that's just part of being an empire, well then stop being a fucking empire because you have average citizens paying the price because you have all these big dreams of what you want to do and how far you want to conquer and rule. And that has nothing to do with the everyday average, you know, person out here. And that's why you should be speaking out against the United States activities in these foreign countries, whether it's in Russia or the Ukraine or Bolivia or Venezuela or whatever, because they're what, what they're doing overseas and the empire and the expansion of empire is ultimately coming back to, for us to pay the consequences on. Yep. And yeah. just to clarify one point, that actually, that saying, uh, terrorism is a small price to pay for being a superpower, that comes from the joint staff inside the Pentagon oh, okay. who work for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff drafting, you know, large-scale military policies. That this was their cliche, their sort of figure of speech that they would cite all the time. And you can kind of see what they meant, right? right. That, well, a truck bomb here, a truck bomb there. If you want to contrast that to the amount of power that they have right. as a superpower, then eh, screw them. I mean, Dick Cheney right? is kind it of Darth sense. Vader. I'm not saying it's justifiable or anything, but I'm saying it makes sense that that was their take. Right. And you could read that, by the way. The source for that is the Weekly Standard. And mm. it's you know one of Bill Crystal's guys that wrote it, although... I don't think it was a neocon. I think it was just a conservative writer who wrote it, and he was a connected national security state guy, and he was making a narrow point that essentially that this was really naive and that they could really – they should have expected large-scale attacks. But he was not saying, my God, can you believe the unmitigated arrogance of these men? that they would think that you can just be an empire like this. He wasn't rejecting empire. He was just saying – they should have had a better imagination about the possible size of the consequences instead of dismissing it as just a truck bomb here or there, which is what they had done, uh, you know? All so, right. and, and I don't think they ever disputed that. I mean, I think that's absolutely a credible quote that no one ever said was fake either. I, well, I was just going to attribute it to the, uh, to Dick Cheney cause he is kind of like Darth Vader and it sounds like some arrogant little thing he would have said like, Hey, who cares? It's just the price you pay, you know? <laughs> Well, in fact, what he said was, what he said was, listen, we are going to have to go to the dark side and do things that are otherwise would be considered wrong, essentially, mm-hmm. in order to achieve our objective. Like and I that said. it's this shadow world that we have to live in where yeah. we essentially what he's saying is break the law and do wrong things in order to including hurt innocent people in order to achieve our objective. 
which is actually, it turns out, the exact definition of terrorism, according to George W. Bush, yeah. who said, look, these guys are willing to hurt innocent people or do anything that they need to in order to achieve their objective. Right. The exact same language that Cheney used to describe what it is that we are doing now, going to the dark side. That wasn't just like, ha ha, a Star Wars joke. Yeah. That was saying, we're going to torture people to death. We're going to kill innocent people. Right. And it's going to be the means to our end. Yeah. And that's what happens when you attack us is now then we can do anything we want. Watch. Yeah. And Which is just crazy. And the fact that Tim Russert sat there and said, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Instead of saying our Constitution does not authorize that, even right. in the case of an emergency. We yeah. have a constitutional law, Mr. Vice President. What in the world do you think you're talking about? The Constitution doesn't create a dictatorship. We've all read it. It's only, you know, nine pages long. Yeah. Small print. <laughs> Small pages. Yeah. So, but no, instead, Tim Russert was like, wow, I sure do enjoy sitting next to powerful people. It makes me feel important. Go ahead, Mr. Cheney. What else do you have to say? Yeah. And by the way, in that same discussion from September 16th, 2001, uh, he also said that, listen, Obviously, Osama bin Laden's objective is to try to get us to withdraw from that part of the world. But that's just not going to happen. Yeah, we could. And then we Tim Russell says, that. is that what it's about? And he goes, oh, no, it's freedom and democracy. They hate us because of freedom and democracy. Yeah, they hate us. Yeah, it's a strategic deal, man. It's a fight. It's a war with a plan. And he had it right the first time. Yeah. You know, they're trying to get us to withdraw from what now again? From their part of the world as opposed to it belonging to us? Is that, uh, 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 oh, hmm. Yeah. Not to be like to put too patronizing a point on it, but right. that's the kind of garbage they, they got away with at that time and still do, really. Well, look, we both need to, uh, we both need to get rolling, but I wanted to ask you one last thing about the whole Russia-Ukraine um, angle before we went how do you how do you see this all wrapping up um is is this going to end up being more intervention on america's part in in this region or do you think america will ever back off and sovereignty will be established that's a great question i think it's a it, again man with the nukes thing it just kind of goes without saying that we can never fight them it'll be fine something will work out it'll blow over but I kind of am really worried about that. I mean, um, just last week, Apple Maps had Ukraine had Crimea listed as part of Russia. And it caused this giant controversy, and they changed it and announced a big policy review to make sure that they never cross American, you know, doctrine again. The fact that Crimea is part of Russia has always essentially, with one small uh, exception, has been part of Russia for hundreds of years. The people there voted in a plebiscite in super-duper majorities to rejoin Russia. It's already a done deal whether you like it or not five years ago. But no, oh, when, how dare Apple admit the truth that Crimea is, in fact, undisputably part of Russia, whether you like it or whether you don't. And instead, and also, by the way, the other side of this argument on TV is, of course, the Republicans, who are completely stupid, who know nothing about nothing, and who, you know, if they were your lawyer, you would be going to the pen, because they can't get anything right at all. Right. They get caught up on every red herring and every stupid thing, and they still worship the CIA. They can never say, my God, what's really going on here is that the CIA and the FBI's counterintelligence division launched an attempted putsch against the American one major party candidate for president of the United States, which should be scratched the needle off the record right there. Hold on. Now what? And then the president-elect who they tried to thwart him in the Electoral College, unbelievably they even considered that, who then they lied on and pretended was a Russian-compromised traitor, who then they even discussed trying to invoke the 25th Amendment to do a coup and throw him out of office just three years in office based on the lie that he somehow was a compromised traitor of the Russians. 
sorry, I get off on that tangent just complaining about that Russia gate. The thing is just completely nuts. But the point being that the fact that the Mueller investigation fell completely flat, they don't have a leg to stand on with the hack, with the troll farm, with any of that stuff. It doesn't mean anything. It's a religion. It's a level of belief. It's as bad as the right-wingers were about Saddam Hussein's evil danger in 2007. We're like, you still believe this stupid crap? Would you please snap out of it, for God's sake? You were just wrong. You can't just say that. God. Right. It's the same thing here, where these liberal Democrats, man, they're so up to their eyeballs in this garbage. They're never coming down. Speak of, like, Building 7. And these guys are the worst kind of truthers. They'll never give it up. And... <laughs> You know, Hillary was just saying this Democrat idiot, I mean, pardon me, this Republican idiot um, cited some red herring false thing about the Democrats' case on TV. And then Hillary tweets out, oh, you're spreading Russian propaganda. Why are you spreading Russian propaganda? Now, every narrative that contradicts the U.S. government on anything, but especially on Eastern European policy in any way, Anything outside of the lines of that very narrow centrist neocon, uh, you know, center right, center left, uh, McCainian consensus there is all, oh, you're a Russian bot. Oh, it's Russian propaganda. Anyone who has the position that Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer and John Kerry and Joe Biden and Dianne Feinstein all had in the Senate as recently as a decade ago that we ought to pursue nuclear arms control with the Russians. Well, that's all just treachery, and, and everybody knows that we need a new arms buildup. Hillary compared Vladimir Putin to Hitler. Yeah. Oh, he went in there. That's like what Hitler did in Czechoslovakia and all this stuff. I did, you know, <clears throat> I kind of think that it's going to be really hard for – Let's pretend for a minute that Donald Trump didn't have the attention deficit problem, you know, did care, had an, an extra five or ten IQ points on him, liked reading books, liked arguing about history and policy with people, really knew and cared about this stuff, really like got a Ron Paul transplant into his brain and just decided that like, man, let me give a great speech where I lay all this out and explain why we're rolling all of this back and why I don't give a damn what Victoria Newland thinks. Her and everyone who agrees with her is just wrong and it's not the way we're going to proceed anymore. You know, the Bill Clinton spit legacy in Eastern Europe is ending now. That's the Trump doctrine. If that was his policy, if this is my fantasy, you know, hypothetical I'm laying out here, boy, would he have a hard time yeah. trying to get past the entire, you know, frame of discussion of this whole thing where Vladimir Putin is this wicked satanic puppet master who controls the minds and motivations of everyone in the world and does whatever he want, whose FSB is the KGB times the CIA times a million billion, man. And they control you too, Tommy. And just all of this kind of thing. I don't know. And in all of the think tanks, all there's so much money in all of the weapons behind this. All of the think tanks, all of the media people, and all of the money behind that pushing this narrative. I don't even think a president of the United States wearing full Kevlar doing everything he can to give all the right orders really could do it. I mean, essentially the state has proven they were worried that Trump might try it. And that's where all this came from in the first place. And he never had it within him to really follow through in the first, you know, at all anyway. Yeah. But they were afraid he might try it. And that's where all this came from. And it just goes to show that, um, you know, any kind of actual reasonable voice on this. Say somebody like uh, John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, the dean of the realist school of foreign policy. He's no libertarian, non-interventionist, radical like me. He's essentially a Kissinger school guy, real politic, not ideology, power and balance and influence in this. Well, he wrote a whole thing for foreign affairs about the entire Ukraine crisis is America's fault. Hey, we can have our propaganda and everything, but when it comes to Foreign Affairs magazine and telling each other what's really true, other fellow elitists, we better admit what we did here and not just pretend that Russia started this because that's really not the reality. You know what I mean? It's not a real it's not a radical position. It's just true. Right. It's John Mearsheimer's position because it's true. Mm -hmm. That's all. And um 
but essentially, you know, I mean, if he got any broader hearing than in foreign affairs, but if it was a matter of public discussion at all, even before the election of 2016, they, you know, would have smeared him as a pro-Russian agent. If he were to have written that article after 2016, they would have destroyed him, yeah. you know? And, uh, you know, I don't know, man. I It's a real problem because I think uh, – here's another thing I should say that I should have said all along too is you might look at this like we're talking about Weimar, Russia, after World War One, after their defeat in the Cold War – Instead of bringing them back into the family of nations, we're rubbing their nose in their failure mm-hmm. and their, you know, new weakness to the nth degree for now 30 years running. Right. And doing everything we can to hem them in and just to insult them and every other thing they do. You know, they talk about I've heard this said by real experts, you know, old guys like Ray McGovern and Eric Margulies and, you know, Chas Freeman and this, these kinds of real experts that go back to the old Cold War in government. They say they never talked about the Russian premiers the way that they talk about Putin, the mm-hmm. way they insult him and demean him and dehumanize him and pretend all of this stuff about him. They wouldn't have dared, you know, not since Stalin anyway. The rest of the time it was all feigning respect as you know much as possible and trying to figure out a way to you know, go forward without setting off H-bombs. And that the level of vitriol, the level of dehumanization, you know, it's like going after David Koresh or Saddam Hussein or, you know, Bashar Assad or whoever they just want to demonize. They want to call names until you can no longer, you know, entertain the idea of seeing it from their point of view. Or you're worried that they're going to all call you names if you do. Yeah. And just... It, it, it's a group that takes over and you have essentially a giant fantasy in place of, you know, in, in the consensus in place of where reality should be. And we really saw the same thing happen with Iraq. I mean, you really had the professional class of all of New York and D.C. and everybody with power between there uh, essentially nodding and agreeing and believing that Saddam Hussein's Iraq, which didn't even control Kurdistan. And which had, you know, you know, essentially had real control over only the very heartland of the country, the very center of the country, uh, Ramadi, Tikrit, Fallujah, and Baghdad, all that, much less influence down in Basra, and and all that already. They didn't even he didn't even control Saddam. Didn't even control his whole country, as Ron Paul pointed out at the time. He hadn't shot down a single one of our planes in twelve years of patrolling his airspace. With our planes, hmm. not one. Hmm. He has no navy, has no nothing. But these people convince themselves that, oh my God, if we don't stop Saddam Hussein, he's going to poison gas our kids. We have to do this. It's the only patriotic thing to do. All important, respectable, professional people agree. And how dare you claim you know better than our leaders and our heroic commander in chief and all these things? And they talked themselves into really believing that. And, of course, the liars lied. Yeah. But the fools believed. By the millions, they believed. And all the powerful people, too. In fact, just like in 1984, the more powerful you are, the dumber you are. And the easier you are to convince of this nonsense. Because, hey, it's your best friends who are lying to you. You calling them a liar, (laughs) you know, or whatever it is. And they just fall for it more than anyone else. I know this from... Driving a cab at the time. Anybody who was a working class schmo, not necessarily leaning left at all, but just basically not being a professional with a really big house, but just being a regular guy. Yeah. Didn't believe in it. Right. Didn't believe in it. And never mind that Austin's a liberal town. I'm talking about people with no politics. Yeah. They're just like Governor Bush and his friends want to start a war. Yeah, I don't think so. But if you were a dentist, you were like, yeah. We got to do this. Me and all the dentists know because it's a matter of like social class and identification. They're Republicans. Yeah. This is something that we Americans are doing together and they thought we were all in on it with them too. And they they believed. And if you try to tell them Saddam is no threat. I mean, I, there was one guy. I, I repeat this conversation all the time. I love it so much. I told him, listen, Iraq didn't do 9-11 at all, man. And he says to me, listen, if Iraq didn't do 9-11, then why are we attacking? 
In other words, that was all he needed to refute me. Yeah. I had obviously no idea what I was talking about. We're going to war against them. You have another explanation for why we're doing that other than that they had done something to us? You're crazy and stupid dumb cab driver kid who couldn't possibly be right. right. Says, you know, rich millionaire real estate investor man with advanced degrees and nice clothes and respect from his peers. And I said to him, actually, hey, I don't know. How come we bombed Afghanistan immediately and we're waiting a year and a half and we're asking the French and the Chinese for permission to attack Iraq? It's because they didn't do it. It's because the law says if you're going to start a war, you have to ask the French and the Chinese for permission. Yep. That's why. Just think it through, dude. Yeah. If they had done it, we would have nuked Baghdad on the first day. The truth. We. They would have. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it was that simple, but it was also that simple to be caught up in believing this level of garbage, even though all the details that you need to know to refute it all are at your own fingertips. Did they expand the Warsaw Pact into Western Europe or did America expand NATO into Eastern Europe? Okay, there's your root of all evil and it ain't a secret and it's not (coughs) hard to understand either. Yeah, you. I mean, you look at you look at how um, Russia has been treated since the end of the Cold War, since the dissolution of uh, the Soviet Union, and it really is, at least from my perspective, the way I look at it, it's like a slow motion Treaty of Versailles. That's what it looks like to me. Just a total destruction yeah. of their oh, yeah. economy. See, I didn't wrap up that point. I was trying to. Is what comes next then, right? If if, you know, Weimar Russia isn't good enough for us, who says that the next guy is going to be a compliant American puppet? He might be a far right winger who has really had enough of America's bullying right. and makes Vladimir Putin look like actually the reasonable guy that he is for being in the position that he's in. And right. I have no doubt that he's a psychopath, but actually, you know what? That means he's cold and calculating, not a ridiculous ideologue who might do something crazy. So... For our purposes, okay, you know, ice cold. I guess I'll take ice cold to caught up in his emotions, <laughs> right? When th- these are the kinds of positions we're putting him in, he keeps a level head, and that's the worst thing about him, huh? All right. Yeah. I think I'll take it. Yeah. You know, but no, we just can't accept independence. Oh, by the way, I meant to say, when I was talking about the start of the revolution in Ukraine there in 2013, yes. right when the protest movement started— Carl Gershman, the president of the National Endowment for Democracy, wrote an article in the Washington Post that ended with, yeah, and if Putin doesn't like it, he might find himself on the receiving end of one of these revolutions sometime soon. <coughs> well, you know, Putin like, already... Unmitigated gall these guys have. And then they, they act surprised that Russia would react to their still at that time impending coup that they hadn't even gotten away with yet in Ukraine. Well, it, blatantly and openly threatening Putin himself with a street revolution well, in the pages of the Washington Post. Well, and that's why Putin, that's when Putin actually took action in 2015 and he expelled um, WTO uh, from from Russia. He expelled the um, what is it? The World Banking Organization um, and he expelled George Soros. Because in, in 2000, the end of 2014 into early 2015, people were talking about possibly uh, organizing a color revolution in Russia. And he was like, wait, those protests in 2011, whenever I was elected and reelected in 2011, were those protests organized by outside, <coughs> excuse me, outside NGOs? Was that, is that something I need to look at? So he just started expelling all these NGOs from from inside of Russia because he's like, no, we're not even going to risk it. We're just not even going to play this game with you. Well, and they had intervened in the parliamentary elections of 2011, too. And by the way, it's clear that um, the way that Hillary took advantage of Medvedev and and had promised him, the Russian president at the time, mm-hmm. that they would stay within the strictures of the U.N. resolution and and strictly prevent an air attack and slaughter of the civilian population of Benghazi, Libya, and instead use that resolution as a fig leaf and an excuse to start a full-fledged regime change war against the government in Tripoli, that that completely discredited the Medvedev regime 
And at that time, Putin had moved down a step to prime minister right. and, and let Medvedev have the spotlight there. And this guaranteed that he was going to run again in only, after only one term out right. and was going to uh, become president again. When at that time, that was not altogether clear yeah. that it was America again. You know, get, oh, look, let's do a reset. Let's get along. And then our first chance, our Hillary Clinton's first chance she gets, she lies and stabs these guys in the back. Right. And then again, oh, we're so surprised that, you know, Mr. Putin is here to, you know, unleash satanic evil on the world now. Oh, is that? Supposedly. Well, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the reaction in Russia was, oh, you meant, when you said reset, you meant reset the Cold War. You didn't mean reset actual, you know, friendly relations between the two nations. So... Well, that was sure what they tried to call it, you yeah. know, at the beginning there. Yeah. Well, that's what they. Be, you know, that's how nice they dressed it up. For, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to to note that, like, look, if there was a failure of that reset, I think we ought to all look at Hillary Clinton first. Why would we blame Putin? Yeah. Why wouldn't we assume that if something is wrong with something Hillary Clinton <clears throat> did, that she would be the cause of? the thing being wrong, yeah, you know, yeah. well, why blame anybody but her as a just, you know, to start anyway. And then and you look at it and it's her war in Libya. That was what, you know, destroyed her own reset with Russia. Yeah. They wanted to figure out now that Putin's out of the way, let's see if we can get along with this Medvedev guy. And then the first thing they did was take advantage of his naivete and screw him and right. make him look like a clown for going along with America's goals in Libya well and so, that's and that that's pushed you know, France closer to Russia too in some ways because of the the crisis of refugees flowing up from Libya up into Europe you know I mean it, it's caused all kinds of issues it's not just caused problems with Russia I mean it's caused all kinds of issues so I mean that's just I mean we could go on about all this crap and all the failures of U.S. foreign policy for hours because it's just like you start looking at it and you're just like well, if you wouldn't have done this, then you wouldn't have felt like you were forced to do this, and then you just keep making... The whole thing is Theodore Roosevelt's fault. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you should have left the Philippines alone, asshole. <laughs> so. Yeah, man, because then, you know, his intervention in the Russo-Japanese War led to the... I don't, well, yeah, but he was just... presence in the Philippines and the... I'm sorry. He like, was just going... Yeah, he he was is, just... It's all... And it really does. It goes back... You can go back to Woodrow Wilson, but even better is go back to Theodore Roosevelt. Never had to be this way at all. And they could have just called off the intervention at any point along the line instead of just doubling down, which is all they ever do. Well, you, know? you can even take it further back and you can say it's James Monroe's fault for, for the entire Monroe doctrine that was taken out of context when Theodore Roosevelt was using it to justify the Spanish-American War. <laughs> well, and then James Madison and his entire constitutional coup. Well, that was just ridiculous. Really, the Constitution was just the Patriot Act of its day. Yeah. You know, rammed through after the Shays Rebellion, Daniel Shays Rebellion. So, yeah. you know, then he goes and he gives Congress the power to raise taxes and support armies. And uh, now... There now, goes the limited public. Yeah, and now I'm, now yeah, I'm looking forward... Since. Now I'm looking forward to Thaddeus Russell's new book again. I'm waiting for it to come out because I want to I want to read all his... His whole breakdown of how uh, empire is actually ingrained in the founding of the United States, and it's not something new. So, yeah, well, all these things are true from a certain point of view. There's, there's always been an anti-war current as well. Yeah, there's always been. You know, you could call it essentially just a facade, but I think. You know that like it's all just public relations in the end, right? But well, I you know, think there were the certain time, people. There's been a rule of law. There's been the ability of people, no matter who they are, to own their property and keep it and not have to trade it all off. You know, give it all away to the local warlord and stuff because the law did actually protect them rather than just exploit them, right? right. And that you know we we have had you know, <clears throat> certainly we have a continental empire here. But we've had a lot of peace and security for a lot of millions of Americans in this whole time, too. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, we certainly do not need the empire in order to have our quality of life here. And that's an unfortunate thing that people with power and people without power believe is true. But it's really just not. The whole thing is wasteful and destructive all the way around. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this way at all. Right. Um, 
But um, well, and it, but yeah, I mean, uh, there's really no denying from a purely utilitarian point of view. There's no denying that seizing the Southwest and Texas and Louisiana and the Northwest and all of that was profitable from the point of view of the nation mm -hmm. overall yeah. at the expense of the Indians and at the expense of the Mexicans and at the expense of enslaved blacks and a lot of other people. Right. A lot of other people were had essentially a virgin continent to make their way on, and they did. And it was great. It's been great in a lot of ways. Um, but they certainly didn't need to keep going. And it's almost certainly the case that it's essentially been a bust when it comes to intervention across salt water in any sense. I mean, again, I'm not justifying anything, but I'm just saying like in a dollars and cents sort of a descriptive way. You know, I'm sure there were profits made in some of the genocides in Latin America stealing somebody's country to grow bananas there or whatever and mm -hmm. force people to work at depressed wages of anything at all and and then sell those bananas to Americans in their high price market or whatever. Right. Uh, that kind of gangsterism. But I guarantee you we always spent more than we gained out of intervention in the Philippines and intervention in the rest of the Pacific. As for that matter, you know, all of our intervention in Europe as well. I heard about it's never had to be that way whatsoever. The whole thing is a bust. Maybe you can tell me what this is. I heard about a book actually, and I I can't ever remember who wrote it, and I haven't I haven't read it yet. So you might have heard of it too. It was actually um, an explanation how the Manifest Destiny expansion west in, into California. Um, once it stopped, it actually cost the federal government money to stop expansion. And so it was only natural that they develop an international empire and continue manifest destiny through empire. Well, government is a government program. I mean, so yeah, yeah. everywhere they're extending authority, um, you know, they have this huge union army. What are they supposed to do with it? Make them all get jobs? <laughs> you know, guess. Andrew Coburn had a great story one time about the blockade on Germany after World War One, mm -hmm. where they had surrendered. They had troops on French soil, <clears throat> not the other way around. Right. They had surrendered under the pretext that they were going to be treated honorably whatsoever, when essentially it was just a stalemate yeah. coming to a final conclusion there. Yeah. And instead, the British kept this merciless blockade on them and shut down all international trade and just starved millions of Germans. And just this murder. And on top of that, just this humiliation of this country that actually was not outright losing the war when they stopped or just barely were in relation to their opponents anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and they were just treated mercilessly like this. And Andrew Coburn wrote about a big part of what had happened was that the bureaucracy for implementing the blockade had just really been perfected and implemented at the time of the end of the war. Right. And so you had a whole British government department in charge of blockading Germany that was like, it was their first real day of work. And now you're telling us that we can't do the thing that we've, or we're all set up to do? Well, screw that. Yeah. And so just this department, this government agency dedicated to its own existence, continued up this essentially genocidal level blockade of starvation against the defeated German, not even defeated, against the ceasefire signing Germans. And it was essentially like, a because it was a public works program, and you can't turn those off, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that was just... Like an episode of Yes Minister or some kind of chapter out of public choice theory where means and ends in government don't usually match up in a way that anyone else would find acceptable, you right. know? Yeah. Or in a way that would they would even make sense a lot of the times. Right. You know? Right. Well, we're expected to live civilly, you know, in our society amongst each other, amongst fellow Americans, but the people that represent us internationally are, aren't aren't expected to act civil to those in the international world, which is just absurd, you know. But yep, you know, there's a quote here, and by the way, if anybody can find this, please let me know. 
I've looked everywhere for it. It's um, 99% sure I'm right that this is a real thing. And I asked some real experts, and they came up with kind of close, but no cigar. But what I'm looking for is Nixon. And maybe what I have wrong is that he's talking to Kissinger. Maybe it's not Kissinger. Maybe he's talking to Halderman or Ehrlichman or somebody like that instead. Mm-hmm. But I could swear it's Richard Nixon explaining to somebody in the tapes that, look, man, I'm a president, okay? And what that means is that I operate on this higher, other, different level where I interact with these other leaders of sovereign states. And that means then that any civilians who die inside those other countries, that's really not my problem. That is on a lower level of morality and thinking that is for other people to suffer and think about. Jesus. But my job as president is to work sort of on this higher level where that doesn't matter to me, and it can't. Yeah. And, it, and, of course, what he's doing is he's justifying the death of millions of Vietnamese for daring to resist America trying to foist a minority-supported government on their country. How dare you resist and, our uh, dominance of your country? And it's just... I'm sorry? I said, how dare you resist our dominance of your nation? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. There you go. And then, But so that's the way he explains it. And, and it's a purely Nixonian quote in the sense of just how factual and plain as day it is. You know, it's just... Again, like I was just saying where it's a matter of just description. It's not a matter of morality. Like he's essentially saying to him, everything is just descriptive and not normative. You know, none of the, all of this is about means and ends and chess pieces. Right. And I don't have time. And it's a, it's an irrelevant topic to me. Yeah. It's utilitarian. The role of innocent people, regular people dying, you know? Yeah. It's, it's utilitarian in utilitarian, you know, the utilitarian pragmatist type of view of the world and of, you know, interming, interacting in the world. You don't have time for ethics or morality, you know, and, you know, like, yeah, I guess Barbara Bush, um, you know, the uh, <coughs> president's uh, wife and mother um, of both Bushes, I guess. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I'm um, sh- um that was the Carlin joke. What did this guy marry his mother? Um, she had famously said, you know, I'm so tired of all this negative talk about body bags coming home from the war. I mean, it's not relevant. Yeah. So how come I have to always hear about this? Yeah. Yeah. And she said it on the Oprah Winfrey show, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And I'm sure. And then, but so the thing is, people were somewhat shocked by that. But... She was simply being honest, and that it had never considered, it had never occurred to her to care about regular enlisted guys dying in the war. Yeah, well, in what way is that relevant to her? It's not relevant to her, and so when she says it that way, it's like, yeah, that's what she means. Yeah, well, it's just like uh, Iraqi children dying isn't isn't relevant to her. You know, children in Yemen dying of cholera isn't relevant. You know, it's just, yeah. It, yeah. it justifies the means. American GIs coming home in body bags, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's yeah. uh, human resources. Resources are disposable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, hey, we right, need... I shouldn't you, give you this thing's probably so long, no one wants to hear it anymore. Hey, we, we need to mention uh, Amazon Smile, Benevity, Cyber Grants, Just Giving, and GuideStar. Tell, tell us a little bit about that real quick. Yeah, so, okay, first of all, Amazon Smile is where um, the Libertarian Institute is registered. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're registered with Amazon <coughs> Smile, and that means so that whenever you um, go through smile.amazon.com and choose the Libertarian Institute as your favorite nonprofit um, organization there, then we get a little bit of a cut from their end of the sale from whatever you buy there as long as you're on smile.amazon.com and signed up for the Institute. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great way to help support. And then those other things you listed there are, um, benevity and, uh, just giving. And let me see, I have the list here. Guides, um, guide star and cyber grants is what you sent me. Yeah, there you go. So all these are, um, 
they're organizations that essentially are clearing houses for corporations who provide um, matching funds to uh, their employees' donations to nonprofit institutions. So, in other words, you take a company like Benevity, what they do is they go to Apple or Verizon or uh, General Motors or whoever, and they say, hey, instead of having an expensive department where you find what charities are acceptable to you, you just come to us and we will only list guys that we have vetted that you can feel comfortable doing matching funds for. And then your employees, when they want to donate to any of these things, you give matching funds and uh, you'll know that it's all right to do so. And so then they do all the vetting themselves. And so that's essentially what all of these things are is if you have a corporate job and your uh, company has a matching funds type of a function, then um, what you do is you, you uh, I guess, have them check with whichever company they use, Just Giving or Benevity or the others, and see if we're registered with them. And then, like you were just saying, we are. So um, that means then you can double all your donations to the Libertarian Institute uh, and make your boss uh, donate to us too. So that's pretty good. And uh, it is our big fund drive, you know, for the from now until the end of the year. We're trying to raise enough money to, you know, really have a great start for the first year of the next decade here and really get the Libertarian Institute off on the right foot and, um, and make a stronger institute, better writers, new website, events, new books. Sheldon's working on a book. Thomas Edlam is working on a new Will Grigg book. Mm. I'm working on a book. Um, all these will be coming out in the next year and, um, hopefully we'll be doing events and doing everything we can to grow this Institute for you. And so, uh, it's our big fun drive. It's right at the top of the page today at libertarianinstitute.org and, uh, all the ways at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And we have books and audio books and all kinds of great, uh, gifts and premiums and kickbacks, uh, for people who donate as well. So that's all at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And thanks for letting me say that. Yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. I just, I remembered right after um, I asked you that last question, I was like, oh shit, I got to get to this before we forget. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to split this probably into two episodes and uh, we'll, uh, I'll make sure that gets put on both episodes and therefore we got all kinds of good information coming out for a little while. Okay. All right, and man. It's just going to start with the part where we actually started, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, I might, I might put the put the rest of that behind a paywall. No, <laughs> I'm just playing. Man. <laughs> no, don't use the rest of that. <laughs> no, no, we're not no using it. What I was saying, that wasn't for. Yeah, for sure. For sure. No, for sure. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm, I'm going to get through it. Uh, I'm going to next week. I'll edit it, edit it up, and and get it all put together, and 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 have two podcasts coming out the week after that for this so oh yeah I finally just remembered where it was that I had this pasted where I had the names of all those things oh you can you can just you can just email it to me and I'll make sure it gets all put put in the same place nah you said it fine okay you said it fine alright well cool man great talking to you again Tommy alright brother we'll talk to you later alright see you man have a good one